Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. Yo, technology. What is it all about? But the amount of data that we have to store to give it the kind of long-term memory that your like college buddy has of you yeah. is a trivial amount of, you know, it's a few megabytes of data, right? I can store everything you ever said to your buddy if I wrote it, if I transcribed it into text. Right. It's like a few megabytes of data and I can just store it and have it available and it'll have better memory than you or I have. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. I am your host, as always, Danny Fortson, the West Coast correspondent for the Sunday Times. And this week we are talking about what else? AI. Specifically, though, we're talking about perhaps the single biggest problem that these systems have, which is that they make things up or in the parlance of the industry, they hallucinate. They can make up just very confidently say things about, you know, people, facts, whatever, that are just completely false. And this is a massive issue because tools like ChatGPT are proliferating really at an extraordinary speed, invading all kinds of industries and taking on tasks from therapy and software coding to financial advisory and as you will soon hear, education. So I was very excited to have on a return guest, Stephen Shu. You may remember Stephen, we had him on last year for a very, very different podcast. Stephen is also the co-founder of a company called Genomic Prediction, which does embryo testing to determine the potential health outcomes to inform parents as they decide which embryos to implant as they're trying to get pregnant, etc. And that technology, uh, the genomic prediction technology, is controversial because it can also supposedly predict things like hair color, eye color, skin tone, IQ. So you can see very quickly where this goes, uh, but this technology is real, it's being used. But that's not all Stephen does because he has started a new company and it's called Superfocus, which is not as dissimilar to what, as it might sound, from genomic prediction. So genomic prediction uses machine learning algorithms to pluck out signals from all the genetic noise to make predictions about the characteristics of a given embryo, whereas Superfocus is more of a generative AI company that is basically giving you answers. You ask it questions, it gives you answers. 
And they're trying to do it in a way that fixes the hallucination problem. And they're doing that by training these AIs in a much more limited way. So using a specific data set and creating very strict rules about what it can answer, what direction it can go and what it can't. So it basically bars the AIs from going off-piste. And so these are, in, in fact, in effect, much narrower AIs. And the, the idea is to sell them to specific companies, industries, etc. Say you're American Airlines and you want a customer service bot that is trained in your entire manual for how to deal with you know angry customers for any number of reasons that is your ai bot your american airlines ai bot for example or maybe they can be trained on something like a textbook as you will soon hear so all of a sudden you have an ai study buddy that is the expert in your u.s history textbook and it can help a student kind of find answers think about questions etc 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 you get the idea so it's a really interesting take on this hallucination problem it also gets to the very heart of what is turning out to be one of the biggest controversies with ai which is who owns the training data if you are the textbook maker for example are you happy for Superfocus to take your textbook, have the AI ingest it, and then become the expert on your textbook? Should you get paid for helping train that tool that is now utilizing your data? And this is a very, very, very big issue for the industry. You just saw this last week when there was an AI that was used to create a Drake and Weekend song that went viral. Of course, Drake and The Weekend did not make this song. It was made by an AI. And Universal Music ordered every platform to take it down. They're very upset saying, this is piracy. You cannot do this. But again, this is a novel creation based on training data. It is not stealing per se, or at least that is the argument of the AI folks. So anyway, it's going to get all get very interesting very quickly. And this is just one small window into that. And uh, Stephen is um, right at the heart of it. So I think you'll really enjoy this episode as, again, it touches on a lot of the, the key big issues that are emerging in this new era of AI everywhere. So with that, I will now hand you over to my conversation with Stephen Shu, founder of Super Focus. Enjoy. The world's an interesting place, you know? It's like um, the AI stuff has kind of crashed like a wave over everything I am doing and covering and all the people I'm talking to. So it's kind of, it's interesting to feel like a new boom has just like happened. And usually it's like, with like before it was like, like last year it was like crypto or not last year, the year before it was crypto and crypto. I didn't fully, I didn't really get, I didn't understand it. I spent so much time writing about it, talking to so many people in the industry and I still like it. It just felt a little like hazy. It's a giant, giant Ponzi scheme. So, <laughs> so yeah, so this feels uh, immediately feels much more obvious and much more useful. Well, I was glad you reached out because I think what you reached out about is one of the things I've been thinking about and, you know, trying to separate what we should be concerned about, what is real, what is not, what is hype, all this kind of stuff in terms of AI. But just before we get there, last time we had you on, it was to talk about designer babies and uh, genomic prediction. Are you still in that world doing that? What's happening? Well, the company's doing well, working with, I think, hundreds now of IVF clinics around the world, six continents. There was a paper that published by some researchers at the company just uh, not that long ago, I guess this spring, 
where uh, they analyzed 30,000 embryo genomes from families that had been through our process. 30,000? Yeah, 30,000. That was a data set. And that's not even the full data set for the company. That's just the people that consented for research Wow, that have been through the process. So yeah, so it's real. I mean, um, I don't know when you know, it's going to become completely normative to genotype your embryos in IVF, but it's getting to that point. Last time I pulled a quote from our conversation where you're like, you know, that moment where we arrive where it's like, you know, the rich and famous can basically choose their children or breed their children to be, you know, six foot four IQ of 200 and they're going to live for 150 years or whatever. We still a ways away from that? Well, we're not, we're not there yet because that would require pretty aggressive action on the part of people. Whereas Right now, it's more about increasing the probability that you have a healthy child right? and reducing risk that there's some uh, unusually high risk of some very impactful disease in your kids. Now, there are some ultra-wealthy people, shall I say, billionaire-type people who are using the technology more aggressively, shall we say. And I, I don't know if when I had spoken to you, did I mention to you that I learned that if you have an egg donor, a surrogate, to a young woman who's basically selling you her eggs. If you put a younger woman through the hormonal stimulation that's normally used for older women that have a fertility issue, those younger women sometimes produce like 60 or 100 eggs in one cycle. And then of course, sperm is pretty cheap. It's free basically. Yeah. Then you can have like 100 embryos or 60 embryos and then just pick the best one. And that's happening. Yes. Then you can have someone who's not your wife carry pregnancy. So it's all like, it's outsourced. It's like Uber Eats, you know? <laughs> this is so crazy. Well, I'll, I'll put the link to our previous conversation in the show notes because I've had a few people come up to me and be like, oh my gosh, that episode made my head explode because of just of, of where the science was and what it all means. It's going, it's for real. Yeah. But that's not what we're talking about today. We're talking about AI and specifically what is happening. So can you just bring us up to speed what it is that you're working on now and does this have anything to do, and I presume it does because genomic prediction is about using algorithms to kind of draw out patterns and see things that you know maybe the doctors wouldn't to kind of predict health of an embryo. What are you working on now and why? So, you know, as you mentioned, the, the core technology at genomic prediction is AI-based. So I follow more than just the kinds of machine learning that are useful in genomics. And I followed large language models for quite some time. And so recently, this is well before ChatGPT, but spurred on by the advances of earlier instances like GPT-2 and then GPT-3, I started getting interested in the question of, you know, what practical things could you do with these models? So for a long time, people in the nerd world were really excited about GPT. But it, it didn't really leak into the, the mainstream world, really until ChatGPT. But in the nerd world, what was happening is you could see this thing generating amazing, you know, occasionally super realistic things, but then also like lots of garbage. And then like what they did in getting ChatGPT launched is they, they did a bunch of things to improve the models to the point where they generate very little garbage. Actually, it's like 90% not garbage and 10%. Actually, even now, what we call garbage would be hallucination, which actually still sounds like very good, well-formulated human text. 
but it's just, it may not be factual and we'll get into what hallucination is. But so I, I got interested in this problem back in 2022. So well before ChatGPT, and the, the question we were trying to answer is what are the like real practical applications of GPT? Like, can you take a large language model and put it in the enterprise? Mm-hmm. And we weren't actually thinking about, it turns out like the ability to get it to write code is a huge thing. It's probably the biggest thing right now. And we were not focused on that. We were actually focused on if you're using it for customer support or you're using it, like say your employees have to engage in really complicated processes and it's like trying to help them perform those actions. Can it be made reliable so that, you know, it does completely hundred percent accurately give you information from the employee manual or the product manual so that that was the problem we set out to solve and so that's what we've been working on and it turns out that now when people talk about it, they would say the way they would describe it is oh those guys are working on basically eliminating hallucination in language models so there's a couple things here there's a couple strands to pull on one is this idea that there's been this like these moments of magic with ai where you're like oh my goodness like this thing can write a believable scene from seinfeld or it can write code or pass the bar exam. You're like, oh my gosh, it's amazing. And then other times it'll be like, yeah, the first astronaut in space was a bear named Steve or something. <laughs> um, or you're like, okay, that's, wow, that's weird. But there, there's also this idea that we are entering the era of zero cost bullshit, where it's just like, you have these machines, you pay, you know, 20 bucks a month for GPT plus, And it is verbose, it never gets tired, and it can pump out really human-sounding stuff. And by the way, there's another language model coming out every week, it feels like. Like, all of a sudden, this is going to be a thing. So it's kind of a spam on steroids, propaganda on steroids, garbage on steroids. Do you agree with that? I agree with that 100%. And, you know, like I believe the first unicorn startup that maybe not the first, because there are some others in kind of generative art, but one of the first that uses GPT technology is for search engine optimization and marketing. So they're basically using it to just generate marketing text or fake web pages that fool the Google algorithm into thinking they're real. And then when they link to a site, it increases that site's ranking in the search results. So what company is that? uh, Jasper. Right. Jasper. Right, right, right. The idea that it can generate stuff and the stuff maybe isn't exactly right, but it's easy to, it seems very human-like, even if it's not factual, that's for real. There's no doubt about that. So there's no hope now for people, like if you go online and you're reading some comment in a forum, you have no idea whether a human wrote that or not, right? It's just, we're past that point now. So the challenge that still remains is if you put a query in Bing and you're asking about good hotels near the center of Mexico City, is it going to make up a fake hotel? Like maybe there isn't actually a holiday in there, but it's going to, or, you know, Ramada Inn, but it's going to imagine there's one. It's going to tell you about the tiki torch decorations. Right, the, right, right. Gonna, it can easily hallucinate stuff like that. And that problem remains to be solved. That's the problem that we're working on. What is the company called? Super Focus. Why of all the problems did you focus on this one? It's because in the early days when nerds like me were looking at GPT, we could already see that it had genius. So if you were willing to cherry pick, like in the very first release of GPT, if you're willing to cherry pick, so you you try a bunch of things and you pick the best answer out of 10, you could see it was like awesome, like 
awesome fan fiction or awesome, you know, little short essay or whatever, as if Edgar Allan Poe wrote this, you know, yeah. <laughs> or something. So we could see that, but we knew that hallucination was going to be the problem. And let me take a step back and explain that when these language models are trained, they're showing it essentially all the text ever generated by humans. Like basically everything they can scrape off the internet is used to train these things. In machine learning or AI, there's a thing called the objective function. So that is a thing that they try to optimize. They're tuning all the parameters, the connections in these neural nets so that it optimizes one goal. And then that's used to do the training. And they, they spent, you know, of order $10 million training, you know, these models just in compute, raw compute. So the objective function for these language models is plausible sentence completion. Mm -hmm. So predicting the next word, you give it a string of words and then it predicts the next word. And it's supposed to predict the next word in concordance with the distribution of words that it learned from the training set that it saw. In a lot of places, like the first N words would then lead to the word bear appearing at the N plus one position, it would happily write bear. But if you were actually not talking about bears, but it just happened that your dog really likes honey or something, it wouldn't realize necessarily that it's supposed to write dog unless you unless you do something very special. So we knew that the basic way the models were trained allowed them to master human language so that they're able to input and output. They're able to comprehend human language very well, and they're able to output very well formulated human language, but they will always have this weakness, the hallucination problem, because they're basically trained only for plausible sentence completion. We've had a semi-regular guest on the pod is a guy called Benedict Evans. He's a very well-known tech commentator in the in the UK. He used to work at Andreessen Horowitz for many years. And so he's reasonably well-known. And he was like, you know, I can't remember the prompt. It was something like, who is Benedict Evans? Put it into GPT. And it created this whole fictitious life for him. It made up jobs. It made up companies. It made up accolades and awards and education. But it was because it was like, for somebody like him who was in venture capital, who had done certain things in Silicon Valley, in London, it kind of created, you know, it com it completed what the sentence would probably sound like for somebody like him. If you ask it about me, I, I was an undergrad at Caltech, and it'll sometimes say I went to MIT. Mm -hmm. I did my PhD at Berkeley. Sometimes it'll say I went to Stanford. So, so those are all really plausible things. What's really scary, though, is if you ask it, for, you know, important paper I wrote on black holes or something or on genomics, it can completely fabricate a paper with a very plausible sounding title, like um, horizons of black holes in disitter space. And then it'll even make, it could make up a journal or it could be a real journal. <laughs> and then it'll give the page number, but all of that could just be completely imagined. It, but it, it, it passes every smell test. Like you look at it and you're like, oh, is that a real paper or not? And of course, it's trained to do that. It's trained to produce something that looks right, but it, it doesn't necessarily care whether it's factual. It doesn't care enough whether it's factual. So let's step back and, and get dystopic for a second then. What does this look like? Let's say, you know, I don't know if it's like kind of nightmare scenario. We have an election coming up next year. Maybe this is the first AI election um, where this is becomes like something that we have to contend with in the kind of information space. When you started super focused and started looking at this problem, especially in how quickly these products are being developed and rolled out, which we can talk about, how do you see this going wrong or what it, what kind of keeps you up at night? So 
in the social media context, obviously, and people haven't, as far as I know, haven't done this yet, but it's certainly possible already. Like if you go on Twitter, like you, you don't know how many of your followers are bots, right? It could be 10%. It could be like, yeah. you know, who knows, but there are a lot of bots on Twitter and a lot of those bots are controlled through centralized networks, right? So now I can make the bots say really realistic things and really complicated things. So if you want to sway opinion and you have a bot army that's pretty big, you can make it seem like, and also like right now, if I go and look at, like if, if I suspect a particular account is a bot, I can go look at their previous tweets and replies and I can see this doesn't look very yeah, yeah. realistic. But if you if you have an account on um, ChatGPT, you could just start producing tweets that are much more realistic and just start seeding the bots so that you when you then look at the timeline of that account, you can't tell it's a bot. And then when the election comes, you can amplify whatever message you want to amplify. So you can kind of almost confect public opinion by saying, well, look, but this is what everyone on Twitter is saying, for example. We've actually tried experiments where we take all the writings of a well-known writer or journalist, and then we try to get the large language model to basically answer questions as if they are Paul Krugman. And that's very imperfect. But if the, all you're trying to do is like sway mass public opinion on Twitter, that the bar is lower. And that is definitely within the power. If, 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 if somebody really wanted to do it, I'm not saying anybody's really trying that hard to do it right now, but it's certainly possible. Is that as bad as it gets in terms of what you think about like the kind of threat matrix, so to speak? Because there, there is also this, and I'm sure you saw, and I don't know if you signed it, but this like stop AI for six months letter. And like, we can talk about whether that makes any sense or not, but it's, it, I think it kind of speaks to this idea of like, oh my goodness, this thing has arrived and we're all kind of freaking out because we don't know what it means for any number of jobs, industries, society, et cetera. The example I gave you was more sort of like human is in control and using the LLM as a tool to do something much more dangerous. And again, now the, now we're getting a little bit more to a five, 10 year extrapolation, but much more serious is the fact that they code really well. Mm -hmm. And so if you give it access to its own code, in a sense, then it, it might start improving itself in a way that humans can't even follow the way it's improving itself. That is the eventual danger. Now, these things don't have any autonomous decision-making. They're not really trying to do anything. They're just, you know, you, you enter some text and then it's basically completing, you know, it's creating some response to that text. But People are already experimenting, including us, with giving it long-term memory. So, for example, if let's suppose it's been interacting with Danny Fortson a lot. Like Danny's a GPT Plus member or whatever. You, heavy user, yeah, yeah. You're a heavy user, and 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 like sometimes you're going to it and you're saying like, man, I don't know my wife why my wife reacts that way. I can't believe it. I mean, I worked so hard on that cake, and then she said, you know, or I don't know why my son doesn't want to play basketball with me anymore. He's so talented. Now, it has, in its current instantiation, only very limited memory. Like for that short conversation, it may respond to you about those issues. It's very easy to give it long-term memory where we're actually storing all the stuff that you say to it. And then we take the stuff, all the stuff that you said to it, and we index it. I, I can explain a little technically how that works, but we can index it by concepts. And then we can append that and we'll ask it when you're... Uh, interacting with it, we can engineer the prompt. So we ask it to search its memory 
for the most relevant information it knows about you, relevant to what you've been saying to it recently. And then it'll pull something. It'll say, yeah, yeah, I remember you, you told me your son has a great jump shot, but he just doesn't want to practice his free throws. And it'll know that. It, you might have said that to it a year ago. But the amount of data that we have to store to give it the kind of long-term memory that your like college buddy has of you yeah. is a trivial amount of, you know, it's a few megabytes of data, right? I can store everything you ever said to your buddy if I wrote it, if I transcribed it into text. Right. It's like a few megabytes of data and I can just store it and have it available and it'll have better memory than you or I have. Do you think that's where we're going with this? Because compute is always getting cheaper. I mean, the types of enterprise applications that we're building at Superfocus are things like you're a Delta travel agent and you've got to reschedule someone's flight and you got to remember how to go in the system and what happens to the frequent flyer miles and you got to pull down this menu. And just taking the training docs that already exist for like Delta, using that as a corpus and then using our AI architecture, we can, we can cause that to become the memory of the large language model and we can force it to answer questions correctly without hallucination based on those training manuals and stuff. So it's already really useful to increase the efficiency of workers because they can just ask the AI, well, how do you do this now? And it just gives them, it'll give them really precise instructions for how to do something right in the system. And is that effectively how you are planning to fix the hallucination problem is to basically create discrete, relatively limited LLMs, AIs that are like, you know, okay, you are a customer service agent at an airline, or you are a bank teller. And we just feed you all the relevant information and all of this stuff. And then you're just going to be fantastic at that, at this one job. Yes. The key is that we append to the LLM, we append a memory or a corpus, which the customer defines, the customer being the enterprise that buys our product, they define it as ground truth. They say everything in this corpus is 100% correct. And you're going to force this LLM to always use that information. No, no information from its training memory or what it read on Reddit when it was being trained. It's not allowed to do any of that. It's just going to draw from the corpus. And also you can include policy rules, like never use racist speech, never take a political position. You, you, can, you can also force it to do things like that. So that's the product that we build. I see. So as you were saying, just to emphasize what you said, we're entering into a world where you're going to see a lot of narrow special purpose AIs that in a way they have the full language power of GPT-4, but they're constrained. They're, they're not going to answer anything except how to like reprogram your big screen TV. I see. So they're still nimble in the way that GPT-4 is because it's very powerful, but they're kind of, they can only use that nimbleness, if that's a word, within this certain context. Yeah. Imagine you have a really genius writer for the New Yorker. Or the Sunday Times. Right? Sunday Times, right? <laughs> but he, sometimes he's high when he writes, yeah. right? So he needs a copy editor and maybe a fact checker that, that are between him and the outside world. Right. So you keep this genius guy in this dark room and occasionally you send him, you say like, hey, can you answer this question? But by the way, only answer using what's in this manual that I gave you. And this dude over here is going to check before we print it in the New Yorker. He's going to check that you did it right. And then we're going to print it. So it's a genius guy, but you're constraining what you allow that genius guy to do. I see. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. 
United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And thinking about this iteration of LLMs, where do you see this having the most immediate impact? Because as you... As you say, coding, I think, is pretty obvious. We had a guy called Matt Welsh on the program talking about his startup, Fixie.ai, and he's been a computer scientist for 25 years, and he did this whole relatively detailed, but still like, you know, back of the envelope calculation of what it would cost to match the output of a human coder to an AI coder, and it was something he called it like the 12 cent engineer, which is very provocative. And they may be wrong by a factor of 100. Maybe it's a $10 engineer. The point is, it's like, this is going to really obsolete at least the job as it is today. So I, I listened to that interview, which I thought was really good, by the way. And thanks. I think directionally, I more or less agree with everything he said. And now the focus of our company is not so much on software production, but the number of call center people you're going to need or the number of even highly skilled agents who rebook flights for Delta is going to go down significantly in the near term. Near term. In the near term, yeah, because companies like ours are, are you know, we're knocking on the doors of the CTO of Delta saying. And what are those CTOs saying? Are they like, yeah, yeah, we know this is kind of, because I was like, I think I mentioned on the other podcast, you, know, you talk to some companies and they're like, and you're like, well, you need an AI strategy. And they're like, yeah, well, you no, know, not, not us. You know, before, if you had asked me what product had the greatest adoption cycle ever, I might have said TikTok. Yeah. Okay. But now I would say ChatGPT just kicked TikTok's ass by an order of magnitude. Okay. But that means if you call, and it could be, I'm in Michigan, right? It could be a, like a medium-sized manufacturing company here, or it could be Delta, or it could be uh, Sunday Times. Their CEO is worried about, wait, what's this going to do to my company, my business? So we, the meetings we've been able to get as a small startup have all been like with C-level people because they, first of all, they realize like, wait, this guy's going to come into this meeting and he's going to educate me because I'm not a, I'm not a computer scientist and, and you know, I don't know what's going on with the ad, but I, I tried ChatGPT and it's like magic. So they'll take the meeting because they, they know we're going to educate them. And then we, we will demo our thing for them. And they'll be like, wait, 
your thing will stick to my product manual and it won't say anything beyond what's in the product manual and the existing scripts that we give to our call center people. That's, that's its whole universe, but it's, it speaks and reads as well as ChatGPT. Okay, awesome. The light bulb goes off. And then it's a matter of, okay, enterprise sales. Like, okay, we got to test it. We got to sign an NDA. We got, we got, we got to do a pilot and see, and, you know, fine tune the language, you know, so that's what we're in the midst of now. Do you also think of this as a kind of like the next computing platform, the next big shift where, you know, if we look back five years from now, we'll be like, oh yeah, there's that big bang chat GPT moment. And then everything after that was different because all of a sudden it's just, these things are everywhere in one shape or form. And it's just, I totally believe that. I think it's going to be like the Cambrian explosion. So we're going to go from only a few geeks are playing with GPT-2, <laughs> GPT-3 yeah. to suddenly everybody knows about ChatGPT and now it's in Bing and now it's in Bard. And then, um, wow, when I went to the bank today, I was mostly talking to an AI. And when I went to um, the movie theater, I was mostly talking to an AI. You know, it's going it, to it's gonna hit that point, I think, relatively soon. Do you think this is good? Like, is this like a good thing generally? Or is it just kind of like, oh, this is pretty cool. This is just going to kind of automate some parts of society and that's kind of it. Or do you think of this, we are looking at something that is more fundamental? Because like when you're talking to companies who are trying to implement this now and kind of create something useful out of it, it's like, yeah, you can kind of be like a way better software engineer and maybe there'll be a lot less fewer software engineers or they'll have to do different stuff or whatever. But, you know, it's the that ATM example, like the ATM, there's more, I think the AT, first ATM was 1970. And now there's 400,000 ATMs in America and way more bank tellers than there were then because it made it easier to open bank branches, et cetera. So like, how are you thinking about this? Of just like, oh, this is like going to be a cool tool that's going to be everywhere. It's going to be useful and it's going to be, you know, broadly additive or is it bigger than that? It's much easier to predict the first order consequences than to go further. So the first order consequences is that just there are a bunch of jobs that where the individual human can be made much more efficient in those jobs. But then that will potentially, at first order, decrease demand for those hour units of labor from those humans. And there are even some where the human role can be completely gotten rid of. So a lot of the lowest level call center things, I think you could 100% AIify them, as opposed to the AI supporting a call center worker, you could literally get rid of the call center workers. So that's probably one of the places they'll be heavily impacted. But then at the next level, it's very hard to know. Like, um, I don't know, you're probably old enough to remember like trying to navigate Los Angeles with like a Thomas guide or yeah. something, like a big map like that's spread out on your <laughs> dashboard. And of course, nobody does that anymore. You just outsource it to your phone and your phone tells you turn left, turn right, right? But now imagine you have a thing that you can type to, but- Talk to. I don't know if you've seen the speech to text. Yeah, it's, it's awesome now. It's incredibly good. So just imagine now, like you can just talk to your phone and you can get advice and the phone is actually pretty smart. Like it kind of knows you also, it knows a lot. It's been talking to you for years mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, it can read how to win friends and influence people. If, if you tell it, you like Sun Tzu, it can read Sun Tzu and you want it to respond using the philosophy of Sun Tzu. It, 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 can, it can do stuff like that, right? So it's going to change everything. I think gradually. I mean, that stuff will be more gradual, but it, it's, it is good. just like Google Maps changed the way we drive our cars. It's going to change the way we navigate our lives. And I'm curious, you know, 
you talk about the Cambrian explosion of uses and ideas. There's also been a Cambrian explosion of companies. I think the last Y Combinator batch was apparently like 70% AI companies. Uh, yeah. It's like all of a yeah. sudden everybody's an AI company. How do you, as someone starting a business in the midst of all of this madness, actually make something that's going to last or not be obsoleted in six months when you know some other company is doing the exact same thing you are or five companies are? Yeah, so there's there's two aspects to this. When we started our company and first started talking to investors, including some of the top open AI people whom I know, like Sam Altman, they were saying to us, hey, this hallucination thing, Steve, you know, GPT-4, when we release it, it's, it's much better than chat GPT in terms of hallucination. And so you guys are kind of wasting your time. I see you guys have come up with this clever solution to the problem, but... Um, don't worry, the bigger, the, the next big model is going to solve it. Hmm. And then what happened is when, when GPT-4 got released, it came with a huge technical paper. And in the technical paper, they actually evaluated it for hallucination. And while the hallucination rate was quite a bit lower than for chat GPT, it still was very far from the 99% level of accuracy that's required for the enterprise stuff that the enterprise, you know, verticals that we're attacking. So Initially, people thought, oh, the foundation model companies are going to own everything. But now we can clearly see you've got foundation model companies competing against each other. There's a bunch of them now. But then you have application layer companies like ours that are trying to really customize a solution to a particular customer so that it really does what Samsung needs it to do to support owners of Samsung televisions, right? And it's pretty clear the big model just can't do that by itself. It needs this other stuff. It's other scaffolding. In the same way, and you can test this yourself just by going to Bing and trying to get Bing to like plan your travel for you. You'll, you'll see it's not really quite up to it yet. Now, the thing you were referencing, which is like, oh my God, in the next Y Combinator batch, are there like five companies that are going to attack the same vertical that we're attacking? Possibly. So that's just, that's the Silicon <laughs> Valley way that, totally. that everybody, people are smart, right? People are going to see like immediate, I mean, it's a beautiful thing really, because it, as a country, the United States, it's like, wow. We have a cadre of risk takers who are technically sophisticated. And the moment, the moment there's a business model that works with this new breakthrough, this new breakthrough is pretty new, right? It's like less yeah. than a year old. The new breakthrough happens and immediately like people are trying to figure out which verticals and which business models work. And immediately the VCs are writing checks for it. Whereas in Europe, everyone is like asleep having their croissant, you know, and like, you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, like, you know. They're like, what happened? What's with this? Let's ban ChatGPT. They just ban ChatGPT in Italy, in Italy right? right? Yeah, yeah. So meanwhile, here you've got like, oh my God, this entire Y Combinator batch, and even some dudes in Michigan are solving this, you know, solving. <laughs> yeah. So um, it is a little daunting to be one of the startups because you just know you're in for a dogfight. You're going to be fighting other companies. Our advantage is that we very early on said hallucination is the barrier to lots of enterprise applications. So we've been working on this for a while and we have working solutions. So just to pimp our technology, I'll just describe one thing that we did. So one of the ways that we tested our software architecture is we took textbooks and I don't know how old your kids are, but if your kids are like taking AP high school classes or college classes, the textbooks are like massive, over a thousand pages. Yeah. Yeah, they're massive. So we took just PDFs of those textbooks and we used them as the corpus, the, the memory for the LLM, and we, we put it into our software architecture. And then we took all the questions from the end of the chapter of these books, and we asked it 
to answer those questions. So you didn't actually just like copy those pages too? No. So so yeah, we didn't we didn't put the we didn't put the answers to those questions in the corpus. Right. And so did you actually have some poor person in your company scan a thousand page textbook or multiple thousand page textbooks? I don't want to actually say how we obtained the uh, PDFs of these textbooks. There might be Russians involved. No, I'm kidding. But um, I will say this, that just so I don't get in trouble. There is an effort among college professors who are very idealistic to create open source textbooks. So there's something called OpenStax, which is a, it's run out of Rice University. And it's professors who team up to create an open source version of US history or intro to astronomy or, and those we can just download. Oh, okay. So we did a lot of testing with those, but we also did testing with like the, you know, the number one textbook for intro psychology and, you know, for US university, you know, so, so the interesting thing is we don't give it the answers, but we use the questions that the professors formulated to test student comprehension of each chapter. And we could get to 99% where it doesn't hallucinate, it doesn't introduce false things that it learned maybe from its training. It answers just from what's in the chapter. And it's pretty much 99% perfect. And that's not just math, that's psychology. That's, In other words, it's not just quantitative, it's qualitative. It turns out these LLMs are not great at math. So, mm. so the actual places where it does best would be like US government, world history, intro to psychology, you know, more like words, basically. So it, it can basically, using this corpus memory that we give it, it can kind of know everything that's in that textbook. And it can, you know, sometimes we would take questions from textbook B, but on the same subject, and use the AI that's focused on textbook A in the same subject. But it could still answer pretty much all the questions that were from the other textbook. Now, of course, like we could talk about how this is going to affect education, because now if I'm a high school teacher or professor... I can easily say to the AI, like, can you summarize sections one, two, and three in like about two pages and then give me five review questions and it'll just, it'll just do that. And it's not hallucinating. It's not bringing in outside information that it shouldn't. One of the examples of hallucination, one of the most subtle ones that we discovered was we were testing this using this psychology textbook and we were asking questions about the relationship between Jung and Freud. Okay. So Jung was a kind of disciple of Freud for a while, and then they broke. And the book didn't really say, only said a little bit about that. So we were, you know, we wanted it to answer the way the book described the the information. But instead, we were getting really complicated, subtle answers about even like the personal relationship or the, the correspondence between Jung and Freud. And it turns out, if you go on the internet, this was not in the textbook, but if you go out in the internet, there are plays and fictionalized you know, novels written about Jung and Freud. And so the base model, the LLM GPT, for example, thinks it knows a ton of stuff about the relationship between Freud and Jung, which most of which is fictional. Right. Okay. So it's really dangerous, but our software architecture suppresses all that and forces it only to answer based on what's in the textbook. I see. That was one of the most subtle problems that we had to overcome. When you ask it about products, It'll often like say things like, oh, yeah, if you get in trouble, just press like the the blue ejector button. But it, there may not be a blue ejector button, right? So it's a very dangerous kind of hallucination. If you're training some Ukrainian soldiers on a tank and the AI says, oh, yeah, well, no, the, 
the ejector button's here on the right. And there's, it's just making that up because it read about some other tank that had a ejector button there. So those are the most subtle kinds of hallucinations that you have to suppress. But you absolutely need to suppress those for enterprise applications. And just thinking about, again, trying to build a business in this world, we've also talked to Imad Mostak at Stability AI, and he's, a, he's very publicly obviously saying, you know, this all, this is this is going to be public infrastructure. It should be open. It should be shared by all and we can all build on top of it. And it's, you know, as opposed to open AI, which is like, no, no, we're not releasing any of the, like, this is ours. If you want to use it, you got to pay us. And we're not going to tell you what, how we train these or what information is in there and we control it. Trust us because if we let the world see it, it's too dangerous or something like that. How do you think about that open versus closed debate, especially when it's like if you're building on ChatGPT or GPT-4, you've got to pay them. I don't know how the payment model works, but you've got to pay them you know, to build on top. We have a whole architecture where the big foundation model is just one module that we use in the, the whole architecture. And we're pretty agnostic. Like We've tested our product with both open AI stuff, but also open source stuff, and also uh, some of the other competitors, the other mm. foundation model maker stuff. So there's going to be a very healthy ecosystem of competition going on in this space. One of the interesting dramas that is happening that, again, like only nerds know this, but you can do the following. You can take a not so good, maybe open source model or something, and you can try to suck all the juice out of GPT-4 in order to improve that open source model. And people are doing this, right? People are even writing academic papers about it. So what you do is you, you force GPT-4 to answer all kinds of questions in a kind of, you send it in an automated way, a bunch of queries, and you, you just take its answers. And then you use that as training data for your not so good model. And GPT-4 says in the terms of use, you are not allowed to do this. You're not allowed to use results from GPT-4 to improve your some other AI. And there was this, I think there was a whistleblower from Google. Google, yeah. Yeah, who said like they were actually doing this to improve BARD or something. So the question, it's a technical question of to what extent, how much interaction do I need with GPT-4 to suck out 80% of its goodness into my open source model, which is much smaller? That's an open question. We don't know the answer, but there are people working on this like right now, right now. So in other words, like there are people basically trying to cripple open by stealing everything from them. And we don't know how well that's working, but there are already like signs that at least it works to some degree, actually. Fascinating. I think those are my questions. I mean, the other, the, the other question is just around that, the idea of training data, who owns it, where does it come from? What are you using to create these models? It feels like, you know, Stability AI is being sued by Getty Images, for example. I got to tell you another story from our startup. We have this meeting with one of the leading scientific and textbook publishers in the world. And we have in the meeting, the CEO of the whole company and his CTO and all these guys. Okay. And we're pointing out to them, you know what? We can train an AI on your textbook. We've done it. Here it is. Right. And they're obviously intensely interested during this meeting and talking to us. Right. And we said, you know, we're kind of thinking of just releasing like, 10 AIs on the 10 most common high school, freshman, college kind of subjects. Which would basically be like a study assistance. Yeah. Or a teaching assistant, you know, help study for this test. You know, don't cheat though. Don't cheat on the homework. <laughs> we were thinking about doing this. We still might do it. Yeah. But we're talking to them about it. And um, they're extremely interested in the conversation. And then 
let's just say after that, they kind of cut off communication with us. And here's the interesting legal issue. How long before you got the legal letter? Well, we, we didn't do it. I think if we did it, we would have gotten the legal. They were like probably preparing it right after the meeting. The guy picked up the phone and called their corporate counsel. Yeah, right? yeah. So, so here's the thing. There's something called fair use. Yeah. 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 Okay. So I buy the number one textbook on U.S. history that's used by every, you know, whatever high school in the country. And I, I open it to chapter 14 and I'm walking around the Berkeley campus and I'm preaching from the book. I'm saying like, you know, the third amendment says this and okay, that's fair use. I can, I can take, I can read from the book and, you know, and yell at people as they pass me on sprawl plaza. Nobody's going to complain. Right. Suppose I learn from the book and I open my own tutoring service and you hire me to tutor your kid based on the information in that book, my copy of that book that I bought. And I tutor your kid for an hour a day. So he gets a five on the AP test. Is that fair use of the book? Seems okay, right? Nobody's going to get mad at me because I'm using the book and I'm teaching your kid out of the book. Okay. Suppose I'm an AI. I show the book to my AI. My AI reads it quickly. Took him about tenth of a nanosecond, <laughs> tenth of a millisecond to read it. And now he's tutoring your kid. Are you going to sue me? Yeah, they're going to sue me if I do that. But should they prevail? Mm. Can my AI friend, like if I share the book, I own the book, I bought it. Can I not show it to my AI? <laughs> and then can I not, my AI not help my neighbor's kid study for the AP test? Just on the education point, because I do think that's obviously that there will be a case if there isn't one already or many cases like that, I'm sure. But could you tune an AI to be an assistant, i.e. not just you ask it and it gives you the answer, but kind of like... Suggest things? Yeah, suggest things or kind of help people kind of help them think better as opposed to just let me just spit out the answer and then nobody's really learning anything. It's just you're effectively, you know, as you say, you're just cheating. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So let me let me describe another set of startups in this space, which some friends of mine are involved in. So imagine that this sort of memory attachment or the corpus to the LLM is your entire inbox on Gmail every message you've ever received, which again, if you just pare it down to text, it's really not that much data. Okay. I let my AI see all that. And then like, when you get an email, you can say, instead of autocomplete, like a word or two, it's just like, Hey, take a first stab at responding to this email. And the email like is from your boss. And it's seen like a hundred emails from your boss. And it knows that the last time you got an email like this one from your boss, this is how you responded. Mm -hmm. So it can just pull that up from its memory and then it can formulate its response based on the way you responded last time. Okay. That's pretty good, right? But now if it's your assistant, if, if it's better than that, it, it could actually actively look at the email that came in. And then based on what you've done in the past, it can say, uh, hey, Dan, you, you got to pay this credit card bill because th this is a lot of money. You got to pay this one. Or, or like, hey, Dan, your boss sounds kind of mad. I think you really got to check in. So it, it could actually become your counsel and it just needs a little stimulus from your life. It needs to know about your life, but then it needs a little stimulus that prompts it to say like, hey, Dan, um, you know, maybe it texts you on the phone like, hey, your, your wife just sent an email and she's mad. Right. <laughs> and then it says like, hey, the last time you guys started on this road, I don't think it was very good. So can you just buy some flowers on your way home? You know what I mean? So yeah, yeah. you can easily imagine it doing more. You you just need a system for prompting it and you need to give it kind of memory of relevant stuff. Fascinating world. My goodness. <laughs> and it's your, you're an interesting spot too, because you're at a university and I feel like a lot of this stuff, like, you know, similar to coding, 
in software, the software industry, I feel like universities and education in particular, it's going to be, you're like right where the rubber is meeting the road with a lot of this stuff. I was just talking to an astronomy professor in my department who said he used to like to let students give short answer responses on the homework, but now he thinks with GPT, he can't allow that because it's too easy for them to let it generate the response and just paste it in. It's perfect. So, or, or, you know, with some editing, it's, it can be very good or perfect. So do you have any idea where, how this is going to go just as a, you know, again, as from the education point of view, from a university point of view, from an educator point of view, do you ban it or do you embrace it and just figure out a way to kind of incorporate it? How can you ban it, man? It's in this, it's in this tab of their browser and the homework. (laughs) So, um, I don't think you can ban it. I think people are just modifying the types of work that they're giving students to do. We could easily end up back in a situation where that, you know, maybe your grade is largely dependent on a final exam where you have to sit in this chair and you're writing with a pencil. And we put a Faraday cage. I don't know if you know what that is, but Yeah, 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 yeah. Faraday classrooms. Faraday classrooms and the you got to write it on pencil. And actually, there's a, there's a big AI staring at you from the ceiling, like the <laughs> wide-angle lens, like watching you. Right? So, yeah. We could end up there. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Stephen. I want to thank you all for listening, for the ratings, for the reviews, for telling your friends and neighbors, for reading my stuff in thetimes.co.uk. Always helpful. Even when sometimes readers, you know, say not nice things in the comments but i guess that's just what people do on the on the internet so be it anyhow that is it for me this week you can find me on twitter at danny fortson you can email me danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk we'll be back next week probably something with ai related and as i said we've got a couple very good guests coming up which you're really going to enjoy i will leave it at that in the meantime stay safe stay sane be well and we'll talk to you very soon Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. <laughs> <laughs> you will be right Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.